In the next hour, Kristen Ulmer will reveal her incredible solutions to living with fear and anxiety, also known as being a human. She will, in my opinion, reveal the meaning of life. If you just listen to the first 15 minutes, you'll just hear a story and miss the answers. This hour will reward your time. We begin with the USU, dive into the River of Suck, and learn how to swim with thought piranhas. You've made it this far, so stay tuned for the real deals you've been waiting for. Welcome to the River of Suck podcast, episode 15. I have a super amazing guest today, and her name is Kristen Ulmer. She is a former pro skier. She's also a fear and anxiety expert. Fear and anxiety. I can't say the word anxiety. Fear and anxiety expert. Say it 15 times fast. Fear and anxiety expert. Fear and anxiety expert. Fear and anxiety expert. Fear and anxiety expert. It's not possible. We just need a rapper. Yeah. If we could, if we could get some. She'd, yes, would pull it off, not us. Right. It's not our job. If it's not your genius, it's not your job. Unless you decide that it could be. That's true. <laughs> we could work at it. Yeah. If you believe that the river of suck is true, that means that you can take anything that's impossible and you can get there one step at a time if you're patient enough and put in the time. I agree with that. Yes. And it's going to be wonderful and it's also going to suck along your journey because that's how life is. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back in time a little bit or a lot of bit. What makes you feel like you're USU? How did you get here? And who are you? Well, I was raised in a small town in New Hampshire, and I had a college professor father and a nurse mother and one older brother. I was a shy kid, which I think my friends <laughs> would be surprised to hear about. And I was an insecure kid because I, I didn't have any friends until I was like 12 years old. Hmm. And I felt like everyone was so caught up in their own lives that I was just ignored and that nobody could see me or um, appreciate me and I'm actually great but what's wrong with other people like it was it was I, I was not, I, I had a really unhappy childhood mm. which kind of worked in my favor mm. actually and I always say to parents like don't worry about f-ing up your kids you're gonna f- up your kids <laughs> the trick is to just come up in such a way that they become motivated by their problems rather than held back by them. So my terrible childhood really contributed to my happy adulthood because I really am making up for lost moments Mm. in time. And I I have so many amazing friends now and I appreciate them probably more than other people would. And I also, my parents were so miserably married together. Like they hated, oh my God, they just fought, 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 fought. And I was a free range child. Hmm. Like I remember I was uh, 13 years old when I discovered partying and I would like stay out all night at fraternity (laughs) parties at the local (laughs) college and I would never got punished. Like whatever, you know, like we just have to trust that I'm going to figure it out. You were caught? They were like, oh, whatever. I'd stay out all night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a kid, I got punished once and they said, you're grounded for the rest of the weekend. And I went and hitchhiked at age 14. While you were grounded? On the highway to go skiing 
when you were grounded? Yeah, the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then got a ride home from friends, and my parents never mentioned it. And I just stayed in that night. And You just vetoed your grounding. Yeah, I did. And I, I didn't get <laughs> in trouble a, for vetoing my grounding. That so. is a power move as a kid. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when my mom found out at age 16 that I wasn't a virgin anymore, she's like, that's a young lady. I'm going to lock you in the closet. <laughs> and I said, don't you dare make me sexually repressed like you. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the end I heard of that. So no, I, I definitely. So that's that's me. Um, I also, I remember at age six, well, my mom tells me this all the time. I wanted to go camping by myself right. in the woods in the backyard. And that's where she drew the line. And, and I, I just kind of always had a real adventurous spirit. And uh, that also worked in my favor. So it, it all just amalgamized together. Is that even a word? So that I had, like people say, what, what makes a world-class athlete? I say that it's the perfect storm hmm. of a lot of things, nature, <laughs> nurture, um, having the right body type for the sport, having the right opportunity. I always joke that the greatest skier in the world is sitting around a dung fire in Africa right now, and they've never even tried skiing nor seen snow. <laughs> so right opportunity, you know, somebody handed me a pair of skis and just the right amount of childhood insecurities and the right kind hmm. and, you know, equals a world-class athlete. Wow. I moved to Utah to go to school in Utah because it was near good skiing. And I got a job at Snowbird. And there's a lot of powder at Snowbird and Alta. And oh, yeah. I skied in jeans my first season here. And then the second season, my boyfriend, Cliff, at the time, we went skiing together and I fell. I got all this snow down the back of my pants and it started to burn. And I started screaming and he's like sticking his hands down the back of my pants and scooping snow out. And he's like, that's it. I'm not skiing with you again until you buy a pair of ski pants. So I grudgingly went and and spent $40 on a pair of nylon ski pants. God forbid I fell on a steep slope that was icy. I wouldn't stop. You know, I'd probably accelerate, you know, (laughs) turn into a missile. And that was the only pair of ski pants I ever bought. The next ski clothing that I owned was a sponsorship deal. Wow. And all this escalated quickly, right? Yeah, it was kind of ridiculous. Like I run these mindset only ski camps and I'm the right person to run them because I am the poster child for it's all mental. Mm. Um, So I skied in jeans until I was 20, which is saying I'm, I'm not really that committed to the sport or not as into it, you know. Certainly from girls that were in high school ski academies that had their best trainers that money can buy like I never had any ski coaching except for those classes in second grade but three years later after I buying my first pair of ski pants I wound up on the U.S. ski team for moguls and I was (laughs) written up as being the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world and those are two completely different sports how are those different just for anyone who doesn't know So mogul skiing, you see it in the Olympics. It's uh, like a 30-second run, and you're just pounding through these big, lumpy bits of snow, and then you throw an air at the top, and then you throw an air at the bottom, and you're judged on style, speed. Back then, they didn't used to have the moguls made by a machine. They were random. That's mogul skiing. And big mountain extreme skiing is jumping off cliffs, um, skiing, you fall, you die, descents. We climb a lot of the mountains that we ski. 
you just do these wild lines as fast as you can, as aggressive as you can, that are really spectacular, that make it into ski movies. There are there is no Olympics for that, right? But there's a lot of ski movies that get made. I mean, I was obsessed with skiing, but I realize in reflection now, it wasn't the skiing that I love so much. It was the place that it took me, mm. and really, that's what I became addicted to. That is beautiful. And, I, and also just being able to find something that I was so good at that was so difficult for so many people. Right. Like it, it is alarming how many bad skiers are out there and they work <laughs> so hard at it and they still suck. What's uh, that feeling that you get? I mean, it's different all the time, but it's the, like one feeling that I would get is just like an absolute ridiculous over the top ego trip. <laughs> like, like check this out. Like, look what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, it made me feel really sexy and confident. It was a place where I could just be fully me and yeah. all my ridiculousness and all my arrogance and all my like aggressiveness and just say whatever I want. Like, you know, early on when, when I started getting interviewed mm-hmm. as an athlete, I kind of made a conscious decision like, okay, what part of me do I want to be in the ski industry? Mm-hmm. Do I want to be my sweet kind, you know, considerate side, or do I want to be my outrageous, controversial, opinionated side? And I'm like, you know, this might be the only chance I ever get to be the latter. So I, I kind of just let her rip. And I was, I definitely was very controversial. Um, some of the things I said were just outrageous. And I challenged existing norms. And I remember people would come up to me and say, oh, you're the best woman skier I've ever seen. I'd be like, you. <laughs> like what kind of a compliment is that? Because it, it was not it meant nothing to me. Because with the gender qualification. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like I don't want to be the best woman skier you've ever I wanted to kick the men's butts. Yeah. And I worked really hard at kicking the men's butts. <laughs> like I wouldn't ever get competitive with the girls because there weren't back then any girl skiers that were very good. But the men were, you know, amazing. And hmm. uh the first time I skied with this guy, Scott Schmidt, I'm like, it's on, right? <laughs> uh, I cut the biggest air I've ever caught in my life because he was there. And there's a cameraman shooting it, but he had no idea I was going to go that big, so he missed the shot. Oh. I know. And I, I, went, uh, I went flying off of this natural wind lip up in Canada. We were heli skiing. And I flew 150 feet, probably 40 feet in the air. <laughs> this is in the early 90s that's on a, skinny skis. That's a big one. And I overshot the landing and landed in the flats. Ugh. So I obviously didn't land the thing and ski away. But if, if it was still steep, I would have. I was in a good body position. But you landed in some kind of powder? Powdery? No. Oh, I, oh. I just cratered. I mean, uh, if it's... feet I mean, straight yeah, to hard pack? Well, not hard pack. Oh, oh, no, oh. it was powder. But I oh, mean, yeah. if you're landing on flat powder, it's, it's still... Right. It doesn't feel like powder. I was fine. I was made of muscle back then. Yeah. If I did that now, I'd, you know, I'd probably die. You have a crazy story about how you became a pro skier. So I was competing in moguls, but coming in last place at mogul competition. So I was terrible at that. But I was really good at talking this guy who was a famous movie maker into auditioning my skiing for his uh, upcoming ski movie. He had these super popular ski movies. And so I drove all night in my piece of junk car that had a coffee mug epoxied to the roof, which just really drove people crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I got to Squaw Valley, um, tried to sleep in the car, but I had no heater. So I basically pulled an all-nighter and then got up at 7 and went skiing with this group of very famous skiers and all their sponsorship gear. And we hiked up to this thing called the Palisades. And there were cameramen below. And we had early ups before the public showed up to to film our movie for a couple hours wow. in the with like nine inches of fresh snow. And they're jumping off these cliffs and they're throwing back scratchers, which was the trick of the day, which is when a skier arches his back and touches the tails of his skis in between his shoulder blades. So I had never seen anybody jump off a cliff before because remember, this was 1989 and I'd never seen anybody throw a back scratcher. This was all new. Now it's nothing, you know. Um, but this is, these were the, the first guys that were doing that kind of stuff. Hmm. And I'm like, clearly, if I want to get in this movie, I need to jump off one of these cliffs and throw a back scratcher. <laughs> so I'd never jumped off a cliff, never even seen it, never thrown a back scratcher. I picked one. It was like 20, 25 feet, announced my plans to the cameraman, shouted, three, two, one, go, like I had seen the guys do. And I jumped off this thing and I threw a back scratcher and I stuck the landing, which means I landed on my skis and skied away from there. No crashing, no weirdness. And then I went back around, did it two more times, and then that was it. The The lifts were open to the public and our film shoot was over. <laughs> so the guys, though... They're kind of loud mouths and they'd never seen a girl do anything like that, like not even <laughs> close. And guys were barely doing stuff like that back then. And so next thing you know, by the end of the day, everyone in Squaw Valley knew my name. Wow. By the end of the week, everyone in the ski industry <laughs> knew my name. And within three weeks, I was fully sponsored and every single major ski magazine in North America was writing an article about me. That's an amazing story. Yeah. And calling me the best <laughs> in the world. That's something that I didn't even know existed. Well, that's called jumping right in, eh? <laughs> yeah. And then um, the following year, I made it on the U.S. ski team. So it was a big year for me. And, and I had to choose one or the other. Because oh, right. back then, you couldn't be an amateur athlete. And I didn't have rich parents. It, being on the U.S. ski team was not financially possible for somebody that didn't have rich parents back sure. then. Meanwhile, somebody was saying, we'll pay you to go heli skiing and jump off cliffs into powder. I'm like, yep. That's an easy choice. I'm going to oh, be yeah. an extreme skier. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we don't call uh, uh, it extreme skiing anymore because the word extreme has become very cheapened. It's gone too far. Yeah. Well, the word extreme means uh, you're risking your life. Like right. skateboarding is not an extreme sport unless you're risking your life at mm -hmm. it. So we were risking our lives. You know, you jump off these cliffs like you don't know what's going to happen. So we now call it big mountain skiing. And you still risk your life. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to make this all about my ski career, though, because quite honestly, oh, yeah. I, you know, I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years. It's a long time. Right. I was also voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America because I did paragliding, ice climbing, rock climbing. Mm -hmm. I rode my bike alone across India for crying out loud. Oh, like, wow. I did all these really crazy things. Like I was so addicted to fear and excitement and... So I was kind of the poster child for all things extreme back sure. then. But the whole time I was doing this, I felt like this wasn't me. Mm. You know, it was really based on a lot of childhood insecurities and need for attention. Yeah, yeah. It just felt kind of stupid. And I realized now it was only training and an education for what to do about fear and what not to do about fear. I right. really feel like it's it was just my where I got a couple PhDs about fear and yeah. mindset, and that's kind of all it is to me anymore. So now you're in this kind of second career as a fear and anxiety expert. 
Yes. Which is my ikigai, my reason for being. Like, this is why I was a skier, so that I could kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together about fear and anxiety <laughs> that maybe nobody else can because they haven't had the experience mm. of risking your life on a daily basis for 12 years like, like, like I did. Wow. I had a paradox going on, hmm. which you can have when your life is only about one thing. Like I felt fearless. I was called fearless. It wasn't true. Nobody's fearless. <laughs> not only is it not possible, but it's actually undesirable. The paradox was this. There was part of me that embraced fear, loved feeling it, um, had an intimate relationship with it. And that's the reason why I chose to do dangerous things. And the fear actually took me into a heightened state of awareness and um, helped me bring my A game to everything I did and uh, helped me be more present and focused, took me into flow states. Like when you're doing dangerous things, like extreme sports are notorious for taking people into the zone. Why is that? It's because of the fear. Hmm. It's not despite the fear, it's because of the fear. But only if you have an intimate relationship with it. And then it doesn't feel like fear, it just feels like excitement and focus and presence. So that's what I did right by fear. Hmm. But the things I did wrong by fear, (laughs) and this paradox is I also also ignored it. Hmm. Like if fear was a boyfriend, it's like, come here, my precious. And then like, no, get away from me. I don't want to hear from you. And I was very, I had a very volatile relationship with fear. Hmm. I was really good at ignoring it. And you can get away with uh, a resistance or repressive or fighting or ignoring or whatever approach to fear for about 10 years. And then your life will just start to come unraveled. And that's what happened to me. Ah. Let's get into the river of suck. The river of suck is an analogy from my former professor and friend, the late, great John McGann, who is a mandolinist and guitar player. The river of suck goes like this. You're standing on the edge of the river of suck. You're on your comfort shore. Behind you is your comfort cave. You can retreat there if you need to be comfortable and chill out for a while. But on the other side, you can see future versions of yourself, the the best possible you is you, your future you, and they're running around doing the things you wish you could do now. And the problem is, in between here and the other side is the river of suck, of raging, river filled with whitewater rapids, rocks, and thought piranhas, and all kinds of other dangerous stuff. You never know what happens under the water. In order to get to the other side, you do have to swim across, and it will suck. You have to suck at something before you can be good at it. And a lot of people seem to try something, fail, and then quit. But I'm interested in the people who stuck with it when it was hard. Because I think these are actually the same people, just with a different response to, should I keep going? Should I keep doing this or should I quit? So that's why the USU is so important. If you can see that your vision of what you want to become, then you can work towards it in a small way every day. That's the river of suck. How it's, do you see it in your life? It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, because I look, I think about the careers I've had, you know, my ski career. I also became a really well-known writer mm-hmm. for magazines. I gave speeches. I, you know, that was a big career for a while. Now I'm a fear and anxiety expert. And of course, everything built upon each other. Right. But just thinking about like my ski career, it looks like a dream, but you don't hear about like watching your friends die Mm. in the mountains. I've seen 
easily 50 people get crippled for life as well. I've had over 50 five zero near-death experiences. I'm lucky to be alive. Wow. I've had nine knee surgeries. I haven't had nine knee injuries, but I've had mm. nine knee surgeries because I had a bad surgery oh, from gosh. a bad surgeon. There's a, a lot of wonderful things to being a professional athlete, and there's a lot of really sucky things. I mean, it looks like a dream from the outside looking in, but, you know, <laughs> like imagine dating... I, I, I love the analogy of skiing being like a guy. It's like, oh, I was so in love with him. And then he started uh, putting me in the hospital and killing my friends. Whew. And, you know, like it's hard to maintain your love for this man, you know, skiing. Yeah. I just got inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame four months ago. Congratulations. And I feel like that was his family and my family saying, why don't you two go ahead and get married already? You just kind of seem to be stuck with each other. And I'm like, fine, right? Anyway, but uh, like now as a fear and anxiety expert, like getting to this point where I have put all the pieces of the puzzle together on what we're doing wrong regarding fear and why anxiety disorders are only getting worse and worse every year until mm -hmm. they're, they're now an epidemic and why the treatments for anxiety are not actually working any more than just mere Band-Aids. Like, just dissecting all of that, it has been just this long, arduous journey. And what I teach about fear and anxiety is so, so different than anything else out there. And at this point, you know, they don't give PhDs for life experience. They don't give PhDs for Zen study. You know, I'm taking on doctors, psychologists, um, self-help gurus, anyone that has ever had an opinion about what to do about fear or anxiety or PTSD and on and on, and basically saying... Y'all are hurt. You're well intended. Yeah. But what you're teaching isn't helping. It's actually hurting people. And it's time that we completely rethink this and try something completely different. And I mean, what I'm doing is so difficult. And I don't like to work that hard. I'm like, you know, my dream life is 10 hour work week and just, you know, we lady of leisure the rest of the time. All of a sudden, I'm working 90 hour work weeks. Under high, high-pressure situations, a mm -hmm. lot of live interviews, big interviews, deadlines. I mean, it's exhausting. And my husband quit his lucrative career to help me with mine because we really want to get this message out. And next thing you know, we're, we had this amazing marriage. And now we, you know, we went through, we almost got a divorce and, and uh, blew up our lives. And we somehow survived that. And now we're fine. I mean, it is, it is sucked so bad. Yeah. And I am not happy. I was happy before I wrote my book. <laughs> I had a great time writing my book. Oh. Since the book's been out, it wow. has been awful and challenging and difficult. And I'm swimming upstream yeah. from the rest of what is being taught. And it's just, it's 50 years before it's time. And, but I can't not do it. I have to do it. If I don't do it, I'll have regrets. You found something that's so true that you can't leave it behind and you have to just follow this where it's going. Yeah, I have to share it. I mean, I know how to end anxiety disorders. How could I not share that with the world? And in many ways, I feel like the rivers of suck that I've uh, swum across before were my own personal, like I was going to a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when I was younger, I was all about hedonism and the gratification of my massive ego. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm doing like this radical pendulum swing. Now I'm just of service to other people who need help in the world. 
And so it, it's like the river of suck that I'm crossing now. I'm not trying to get to a better version of myself, even though that's part of it. Right. I'm just sacrificing myself for the betterment of the whole. Wow. You know, I'm 53 years old. At some point, people make that transition where it's not just about themselves or their own ego anymore. And it's more about my unique mm. contribution to the world and why I'm here and what I have to offer. Wow. That's the river I'm swimming now. Cool. Well, good thing you figured out your USDU. That's hard for a lot of people. They have decision paralysis. They can't figure out what direction to go in. It's true. And, you know, along the way, I'm learning that I have to be careful how I present my message about fear and anxiety. I can't do it aggressively. Um, mm -hmm. I can't do it too softly. Yeah. I can't do it in a masculine way. I'm a woman. People will not put up with that. If I was a man, this oh, would be she's so... Bossy. Yeah, yeah, she's such a know-it-all. Like, I, I have to adjust. It's the first time in my life that I've ever noticed that I'm being discriminated against from being a woman. I've only ever felt like I was given more opportunities because I wow. was a woman. And now I see, you know, as a mindset sports coach, for example, mm -hmm. it's a lot harder. Like, they just, they don't, they, if I was a guy, no problem. <laughs> I have to really work hard at being able to deliver my message in a, a strong, confident, somewhat masculine way, but with lipstick on. <laughs> and have uh, it be gentle and feminine and soft, hmm. too, so that people won't just throw me in the know-it-all category. You've found the secrets of the human mind. What the heck is going on? What did you figure out? <laughs> oh my God, I love the way you phrase that. Um, okay. People that have emotional issues, listen up. And I'll <laughs> We're listening. The River <laughs> of Sucks his, Swim Team he put is his listening. Hand behind his ear. Um, <laughs> the things that you're doing to resolve your emotional issues, be it depression, anxiety disorders, panic attacks, irrational fear, insomnia, like fear keeping you up in the middle of the night, um, depression, PTSD, things like that, that buy you a moment or a day of relief. Things like meditation, letting it go, positivity practice, deep breathing, exercise, like distracting yourself, all that stuff. They're great. They work to quell the symptoms of these problems. Right. And even in uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, like training your brain to be more positive, things like that, um, like they're all just dealing with the symptoms. Hmm. And they're a temporary solution. Some are, are work better than others. They're, they're not without a lot of work. But the problem is, if they were working, why aren't anxiety disorders becoming less and less? Why aren't people sleeping better? Why aren't people having less and less depression? No, these problems are only getting worse and worse and worse. And the reason why is the treatment for them is actually the cause. Hmm. So let's back up and talk about the cause because you could go to any number of doctors or psychologists or self-help gurus and if you have an anxiety disorder, they're not going to be able to tell you why. There's, there's just nobody out there that will give you, I mean, they may say something like, well, you're, you're working too many hours and you're too stressed out and you need to calm down. And, you know, like that's, that's not the answer. Like why do some people have anxiety disorders and why do some people not? Right. Here's why. If you have an anxiety disorder, here is why. So we have this amygdala, 
two almond-shaped nuggets at the top of the spine, determining safe or not safe. And all data comes through this filter first into your system. Now, the amygdala is the manufacturing plant for fear. And with this data coming in, if there's a perceived threat, the amygdala will manufacture fear. And it's a feeling, emotions are feelings Mm -hmm. that are in our bodies. So it'll send a shot of fear into the body. Proven by science. These are in the body first. (laughs) And they're supposed to run their course, the fear, in 10 to 90 seconds. And while it's here, provide for you alertness for survival, safety, you know, to bring your A game to everything you do, like I was talking about before in skiing. Mm -hmm. And then the fear's gone. But the thing is, to the amygdala, everything is a perceived threat. And as a result, fears with us every single moment of every single day in nearly every single interaction we have. Now, we kind of refuse to believe this. And we're not aware of it for the most part. Some people are, very few are. You know, it's, it's, it's totally in our undercurrent. Right. And we've come up with incredible coping mechanisms to not deal with it, to not be aware of it. We're in our heads all the time, so we don't have to feel that feeling in our bodies is probably the biggest yeah. way I see this manifest. So Why won't he- my brain shut up? Right. <laughs> so then when the fear actually becomes kind of known to us, we're taught to, and you know the words, conquer, overcome our fear, which suggests a war. Yeah. We're taught to ignore it. We're, not, we're taught that it's not even real. Like when the first time little Johnny says, mommy, I feel afraid. Mom says, there's nothing to be afraid of. See, there's no boogeyman, which is total BS. Of course there's something to be afraid of. And if it's not the boogeyman, it's like everything. I mean, life is freaking scary. Yeah. Fear of rejection alone, my God. (laughs) Right? To a four-year-old about to go to kindergarten. Sure. So not never mind to us sitting here, you know, talking on this podcast, like we're all just, there's just so much to be afraid of. And then the tsunamis. Please and, love me. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, anyway, so we have been teaching to our children who've been teaching to their children, be teaching their children that fear is something to fight, to ignore, to overcome, to get rid of, yeah. to be embarrassed about, to hide, to, mo- you know, if you want mommy and daddy's approval, then you, you know, you push it down to your system and you stuck, kind of get it stuck in your body and you don't allow it to express itself. And it's supposed to be a resource to help us be magnificent. But instead, it's kind of like water through a hose, like these droplets of water. We kink Mm -hmm. the hose. And then the droplets of water, the fear, just gets stuck in your body. And then they just recirculate round and round and round and round. And that's anxiety. Damn. So anxiety is fear stuck in your body that Mm. hasn't run its course the way nature intended Mm. because of some sort of habitual pattern that you learned either from society or from your parents. And in your book, you're talking about fear gets repressed into your emotional basement. I love the visual of like, what does fear look like down there? Well, it's made worse by this. The dualistic nature of being a human being, like the way our brains compartmentalize things, Mm -hmm. things are good or things are bad. And in Zen practice, we say we have 10,000 states of being. Mm. 5,000 of them are good. 5,000 of them are bad. <laughs> so my analogy that I love the most is imagine that you have a house full of children and 10,000 children to be exact. Big house. And half of them you've named love and joy and fun and gratitude, forgiveness. <laughs> and the other half you've named fear, anger, sadness, despair, hatred. Despite your best intention, 
would you be able to treat them all the same way? Hmm. I, yeah, maybe that's, yeah, I think. I mean, no, what do we, what do, we no, do? No, what we do we do? No, we run towards good feelings. Yes. We try and, to hide from the bad ones. Right. And if you have an anxiety disorder, oh, you just need to cultivate, cultivate gratitude and joy and love. And I oh, mean, yeah. It, it's called spiritual bypassing. We make fun of it in sitcoms. <laughs> right? Why is this being taught? Oh. Your gratitude practice is not going to make your anxiety go away. And here's right. why. So what we tend to do is we tend to love and nurture and show off to the world all these wonderful children. Yeah. And what do we do to the bad children? Put them in timeout for decades. Yes. We put <laughs> duct tape over their mouths, Ooh. lock them in the basement, throw away the key. And they're down there in the dark mm-hmm. with no love, no food, no water, no sunshine. They can't Ugh. see. They can't hear. They don't know what's going on up there on the surface. And they're they're getting angry and they're, they're starting to bond together all these ones that we want nothing to do with and they're conspiring and they're you're looking for like if you plug a volcano it explodes out the cracks so Ooh, they yeah. are going to explode out the cracks i found that fear locked in the basement like that will show up in one of three kind of twisted weird ways either show up as an exaggerated version of itself screaming like pay attention to me you yeah. know in the form of panic attacks anxiety disorders hmm. irrational fear yeah or it'll show up redirected in other ways. Like if uh, like little Johnny has a really scary home life mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to feel afraid because that feels power, like kind of weak and wimpy. Yeah. Well, he has to feel something. So he feels anger instead. Mm. And 95% of what we know as modern anger is actually just fear, you know, using anger as a way to get out and mm. make itself known. Or it'll come out in your mind. It'll mm. go to the place where you live in order to get your attention. It'll wind up in your thoughts. Fear is not supposed to be in your thoughts. Right. Fear is supposed to be in your body as a feeling, a sensation. But if it's, it's showing up as a loop of, in your thoughts, then that means that you've locked fear in the basement. And um, it could also hijack your mind in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep. If you're really good at ignoring it during the day, it'll wake you up then because that's the only chance it gets. Does that and, sound familiar, anybody? <laughs> yeah. And we have the cause of insomnia. You know, insomnia, if it's fear-based, like if you're looping fearful thoughts in the middle of the night, it's because you're not dealing with your fear during the day Mm. or in your life in general. Yeah. So this fear that's trapped in your body, like you do not want to stop the flow of fear. You do not want to trap fear in your body because next thing you know, your entire life will be about managing that war, that problem, that war that you have going on down there with this emotion and then the thing is, that's so funny, is we blame fear. We say fear's the problem. Fear's holding me back. Mm. We, we never oh, I can't th- do this because of, I'm yeah, afraid. Yeah, because, because of fear. But it's the way that you've been treating fear that's the problem. You're the problem, not the fear. <laughs> the fear is only here to help, but you've picked a fight with it. Mm. And if given a battle between you and fear, fear will win every fear time. Fear fights dirty. If it has to, it'll do whatever it takes. Wow. You know, it's very smart and it's been around for millions of years and, you know, you're only 40 years old or however old you are, like you're not going to outsmart fear. Right. So, and why would you want to? Because fear is only here. So we can overcome it. No, no, no. Well, (laughs) we can't overcome fear. That exact language is what has caused anxiety disorders. (laughs) But we can overcome the bad habit we're in. Right which is that none of us are dealing with our fear in an honest way, in a considerate way, in a loving way. 
And if you learn how to do that, it requires effort, but it works. I've seen it happen again and again in a very short period of time. Anxiety or disorders end, depression lifts, PTSD resolves, insomnia yeah. ends, and on and on. It's and, profound. And you're talking about all of these emotions or voices as your children. So wouldn't we love our children, even if there's 10,000 of them? The way that people treat fear, like if it really was a child, yeah. we'd all be on the cover of People magazine next month for being worst parent of the year. Oh, like <laughs> worst parent of the year. Locking, you know, I've locked my fear in the basement since age five, you know, and then I've like encased it in cement 10 feet below the basement. I'm medicating, you know, it away. I'm, you know, it, it's just the pills that we're taking at this yeah. point to sleep or to just function just so that we can shut fear up. Mm-hmm. There's better options. And I would never suggest that anybody get off their medication, but there are better options. There are different levels. And it's not meditation and it's right. not letting it go. It's not breathing exercises. That stuff are band-aids only and they make it worse because it, it's more, it's just ways to continue to not deal with your fear. In my pilot episode with Rashad Eggleston, the cellist, he has an outlet for this, and we talked about it. So he has named one of his voices Negative Ralph. It's a character. And I, I kind of want, just want to play you this little segment and see what you think. You see, that's using negativity to have fun, which is obviously if negativity is going to be so damn persistent, it's just like, hey, hanging out with me, hang out with me, hang out with me. Hey, are you free? Are you free? You're, I know you're doing something. I know you're trying to be like really amazing right now and like a good person, but like we need to hang out like right now. It's like the neediest friend ever. So if it wants to hang out with you that bad, put it to work. Give it a broom or give it a guitar. I love that. <laughs> And, you know, people who are uh, artists in the traditional sense, like he is, Mm -hmm. like you are, get it. Absolutely. Like, I had a a musician boyfriend, and uh, I dumped him over the internet. I sent him an email. (laughs) (laughs) And he was on tour, and he was just kind of like a concert monkey. Every night he played a different venue, and it was just getting old and boring, and and he'd been doing it for 30 years. And anyway, I broke up with him unbeknownst to me an hour before he was about to go on stage. And uh, he threw his computer against the wall and was Ooh. like, and he said uh, later that um, that was his favorite performance because he Whoa. finally actually felt something while he was on stage <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and he played great. <laughs> so listeners, contemplate this because yeah. this actually happened, but there was a woman concert pianist that was about to play to a sold-out audience. She was very famous, and her assistant got a phone call 10 minutes before she was going to go on stage and found out that the woman's mother had just died unexpectedly. Hmm. And she hung up the phone. She had a decision to make. Does she tell the woman before the concert or afterwards? And this is her mother, you know? What do you think she did? Well, she didn't tell the audience, and then she played awesome. Yes. But Hmm. the thing is, in that world... yeah. In the artistic world, of course you tell her before. And this is a famous concert pianist. This yeah. isn't a hack. Like, she gets it. The, and her personal assistant, I'm sure, gets it too. And that woman played brilliantly. And there wasn't a dry eye in the audience. Even though the audience had no idea the woman's mother 
had just died. They just knew that she was brilliant and they it moved them. Mm-hmm. And what we don't get is that we're all artists and our Ooh, life is yeah. our art. Yes. And as a, as a <laughs> skier, I was an artist, hmm. you know, um, as a solo performance skier, you know, not a team sport. Right, right. In a sport where it's all about expression and not about like race results, like timing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, especially that, like, I, it felt like radical self-expression, just like the cellist. Yeah. You know, it's like we're just radically self-expressing who we are, what we feel. Like our emotions are our fuel. Our body is the engine, I guess. Hmm. Our emotions are the most important thing because why are we here on this earth we're here to be alive we're here to feel alive well guess what that's what the emotions do they help us feel alive we just want to feel something yes well you can't feel something uh well you can't feel joy if you repress fear you can't like selectively repress an emotion without affecting them all right you know and if you repress fear next thing you know you can't feel anything and like I said before, we're all in our heads so much so that we don't have to feel fear. And then we now we don't feel anything, especially men. And there's a reason why men die younger. And there's a reason why men are more prone to committing suicide. Mm. You know, they're taught to repress, repress, repress their fear. You know, it's not manly to be afraid. You know, bump in the night, they have to go and investigate with the baseball bat and they're just blocking their fear out mm. rather than using it as a tool to help them be more sharp. Like Bruce Lee, you yeah. know, didn't repress fear. We'll put it that way, okay? So you need some kind of outlet. And and you actually just connected the dots. I was like, well, okay, so we have a song, but what about for people who can't sing songs? But you just said life is our art. Yeah, and your life is your art, your personality, your your experience that you're here to have. And we're here to feel, mm-hmm. right? We're here to feel alive. So you got to invite the emotions into that process or else you're never going to feel alive. You're going to exist for 80 something years and then you'll just be gone and you'll never have actually really had the experience of being a human being, Hmm. you know, in all of its horrors (laughs) and all of its joys. Wow. It's a volatile experience being a human being. (laughs) We're so sensitive. We care so much. And yet everything we love and everyone we love is going to be taken away from us. Um, uh, way before we're ready for it and uh, yeah. not on our terms. And I mean, it's just, it's so hard. And like I watch um, American Ninja Warrior <laughs> yeah. and um, every time they do a, a vignette on one of the athletes, they're like, okay, here's the guy whose wife has cancer. And here's the guy who was teased as a child. Like everyone has a trauma story. There's nobody that... Um, hasn't had serious challenges in their lives. And we treat them like, oh, it's unusual and look at what they've over. Every single one of us, that's Mm. just the nature of the human experience. We're all going to experience trauma. And so when the fear and the anger and the sadness show up from that trauma, we better know how to deal with it so we don't wind up depressed or with PTSD or can't sleep at night. Um, And that's what I teach. I help people learn how to not just deal with their emotions, but actually feel their emotions Mm -hmm. and then use them as an energy resource to feel alive. Yeah. Right now in our culture, emotional intelligence is seen as our ability to intellectually understand our emotions, which is impossible (laughs) and control them, which is impossible. 
Mm. And who mm. likes to be controlled? Certainly not fear. Definitely not anger. Mm. I mean, there's so many books written about emotional intelligence saying that. It's just managing your emotions is not emotional intelligence. Right. For me, emotional intelligence is our ability to feel our emotions. Yeah. As they exist in our bodies in an honest way and have them help us come alive. Well, just do that, dear listener. It'll be good. Easier said than done. <laughs> How do we fix this? How do we change? How do we start having a more healthy relationship with fear and our emotions? What do we do? Well, first of all, nobody can control pretty much anything. Like trying to control other people. Like how does that go? Right? Trying to control the weather, (laughs) the traffic, sun, the moon, the stars. Like externally, we're not controlling anything. Right. You know, whether you get the promotion or not, you can do little things. And internally, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like nobody's controlling shit internally (laughs) you know we might be really good at hiding things from people that we're feeling we're very good at that yes we are (laughs) actually we're kind of not we think we're good though yeah one in ten people are intuitive they can see right through you like i'm a zen therapist yeah you know when you meet like a psychologist at a party and you're like oh my gosh this person can see right through me yes we can (laughs) we can see exactly what's going on (laughs) if you're an intuitive and one in ten are so we're not controlling anything But we're working like dogs to try to control these things. I got to the end of my ski career and I was really burnt out. It's because I was so exhausted from trying to control my fear. Hmm. It was taking 99% of my energy to block out my fear. And yeah. (laughs) And so uh, whatever you try to control winds up controlling you. Next thing you know, you're a slave to trying to control that. And you're meditating two, three, five times a day just to function. And you're doing breathing exercises, breathing in positivity, breathing out fear. Like, it's just, it's like we make fun of these things on Serenity Now and sitcom Stuart Smalley with the post-its on the, like, why are these things being taught to help people have a more positive attitude is because we don't know what else to teach. It's like the sugary cereal version. Yes. So here's what I found that works. There are two ways to live your life. Where the first way is you're in resistance to negativity and trying to control things and, and have a more positive attitude and the gratitude practice and all that and and uh, the denial of the negative and um, you know feeling like if the negative comes in then there's that's a character flaw or personal weakness and that we're all about love and you know like having that belief and trying to live that and I want to throw up in my mouth a little bit but okay you know it's for some people <laughs> right yeah good luck with that or and this is a zen way and i think people think zen is what i just outlined that's not zen mhm Um, The image of the monk meditating on the cushion all blissed out and joyful is hard to shake, but that's not what's going on. Hmm. The second way to live your life is what the monk is is doing, which is we're just becoming one with it all. And, um, you know, when you suck, just suck. When yeah. you're amazing, just be amazing. When you're disappointed, just be disappointed. When you're When you're bummed that it didn't turn out the way that you wanted to, just allow yourself to be bummed out hmm. instead of trying to rush to something else. Yeah. I see these as individual droplets of water, you know, coming through our body like a hose. Right. And the second you see something you don't like, you kink the hose and then it just starts recirculating round and round, like I was saying before. So just be in flow with it all. 
Like everybody says, it's a big buzzword right now. We just want to be in flow. Like, can you find a way to allow all states of being, the good and the bad, to just naturally flow through your system like droplets of water? And each of these 10,000 voices, I call them, or states of being, emotions, thoughts, whatever, even I suck, I suck, I suck, I'm not good enough, not good enough. <laughs> you know, can you just allow them to run their course the way nature intended? They're all here to just, first of all, show you what it means to be a human being. Um, they're all actually here to help you, you know, be a creative, alive, um, kind of contrasted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a painting that's just just a white wall. That's not a painting, that's a wall, but a black and white, like the, like we got to have the contrast in order for our life to be a work of art. And so... They're all here to help us. Nature did get it right. Um, can we learn how to embrace it all? And that's what I help people learn how to do. Wow. You're so optimistic about this. <laughs> I, I mean, for somebody that's really, really invested in fighting the negative, yeah, it's way out of the box for them. Like, let's say somebody's f- 50 years old mm-hmm. and they've put a dollar a day into a jar you know, they'd have a lot of money by now. They have this huge investment that I've got to overcome my thoughts that I'm never going to be good enough. And they've worked, they've gone to a therapist for years and they've kept a journal and they've, you know, done 10 Vipassana retreats and now it's not that bad as like it used to be. Like they're really, really invested in this war against the negative and they don't want to throw away that jar of money. It's hard. Right. But you're working with people all the time every day on this and you're seeing results. Yes. If people aren't getting the results that they want by denying the negative or fighting it or um, trying to replace it with positivity, then they come to me. And then what I have them do is like back to the analogy of the child, child screaming, right? You can find new ways to ignore the child. It's very, very difficult. And it doesn't really give you very good results. It just makes the child more and more upset. And it becomes harder and harder to do until you give up and take drugs, hmm. either recreational or prescription. <laughs> um, so the, uh, the bad drugs, not the good drugs. Right. So what I help them do is I help them turn towards the child and have a conversation with that upset child. Hmm. And like children will, once you give them your undivided love and consideration and attention, they calm right down. Anxiety disorders go away. You can sleep better at night. PTSD lifts. Depression lifts, I've seen it happen again and again. It requires some effort. And especially if you've been very invested in fighting a war with these children for so long, you know, it may seem impossible, especially if you hate them so much. But if you turn towards them, you realize that they're not that big of a deal. It's actually easier to have a conversation with them than you realize. I, I help them do it in a gentle way. Yeah, I mean, I've seen somebody with a chronic 30-year anxiety, social anxiety disorder, panic attacks, all of that in about six hours of working together, it's gone. And I check in a couple years later and it's still gone. And and I've also seen people really, really struggle with this work. And I've been working with them for five years and they're they're still in resistance to it. They want to go back to fighting, mostly because they're addicted to the drama of the fight against fear. That like sounds, life, yeah. If you have a war against fear and you end the war and peace ensues, they may find it a little boring. Right. <laughs> and they'd rather go back to the war. 
And I also wanted to talk to you about the thought piranhas. Yes, let's talk about thought piranhas. So, um, thought piranhas. Oh, thought piranhas. Thought piranhas. <laughs> thought piranhas. You know, all over the internet, you can see women swimming with great white sharks or <laughs> men who have crocodiles as pets. Like, even these, like, you're, t- gnarly, you're talking about real animals. Real not, animals. Not, not, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Real animals, like gnarly, scary, just like evil, yeah. evil, evil animals. And, you know, these all, even these gnarly animals just respond so well to love and consideration and, you know, and our, our fears mm. the same way. And our negative thoughts are the same way. If you're fighting a war with, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. It's actually the war with it that, that is the problem, not the thought that I'm not good enough. You know, I used to think I'm not good enough. And then that was, there's a saying in Zen, a good horse moves at even the crack of a whip. And, uh, and I'm like, oh yeah, watch this. Like, like I had a little, you know, little kind of fun little exchange with that part of me. Um, and it really uh, becomes a motivator, you know, if you have a playful relationship with any of these evil animals, even mm-hmm. the thought piranhas. So here's the thing. The universe wants you to thrive. Ooh. It wants you to do well. I would like to believe that. Yeah. And nature did get it right. And all of these negative thoughts, you know, if, if we didn't have them, you know, we'd have nothing to push against. Like you go to a gym to lift weights, and if you don't have anything to lift and you're just pushing against air, you're not going to get strong. You need to have something to push against. You need to have mm. something to push you. That's how you get strong. Yeah. And fear, if you give it some love, some consideration, some attention, next thing you know, it's not a crocodile that's wanting to bite your heads off. It's actually your buddy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And that's what happened for me during my ski career. Like, I was Batman. Fear was Robin. Stronger together than apart. Wow. <laughs> there is no good fear and bad fear. We get that wrong. There, it's just fear. It's like yeah. the dog, you know? The dog's just a bad dog if he doesn't be- behave the way you want the dog to behave. The dog's a good dog if he behaves the way you want him to behave. But the dog's neither good nor bad. The dog's just the dog. Mm-hmm. Fear is just fear. Yeah. And if you want fear to behave in a good way, you treat him nice. You don't train it. You know, you right. treat it nice and it'll be just fine. You know, that's where the analogy with the dog ends. Like, you kind of want to train the dog not to poop on the carpet, right? Um, that's nice. Yeah, but do you do? You can do it one of two ways. By beating the dog when the dog poops on the carpet. Mm-hmm. What kind of dog is that going to create? Right? Or just being kind to the dog and being sweet and gentle, you know? Mm-hmm. Fear is going to behave exactly however you treat it. So, let's get real specific for a second. You're going about your day. Everything's going great until that damn thought piranha just shows up and starts sabotaging your good vibe with the downward spiral of a negative thought. How do we honor that negative thought? Like, what do we literally do to give it that space? I love to personify these things. See it as a roommate or a child. Let's stick with child because that's where we've mm-hmm. gone. So you could either try to fight that child or resist that child. Whatever you resist persists. Yeah. You you fight the child, like you now have a war with this. It's just not going to work out for you. Or you could see this as an opportunity for self-love. Like turn towards that child and say, okay, what is it? Why are you trying to get my attention? Like what is it 
that you're saying that I'm not listening to, you know, there's something there for you. Like turn towards it, have a conversation with it, spend some time with it, you know, in a loving way, not as a way to get rid of it, not as a way to get it to shut up. Yeah. Like if you spend some quality time with a child who's upset and say to that child, okay, I'll spend five minutes with you. And after that, then will you shut up? (laughs) Right? Like that's not what you're going for. Like this is a part of you. It's your teacher, you know, and it's like a feather on your face tickling you. Are you listening? Like, are you listening? I'm here. Like, let's have a conversation. Wow, super cool. This is your opportunity to grow. When these negative things come in, it's always an opportunity. And I mean, yes, they're AFCOs, another f***ing growth opportunity, right? But, um, (laughs) but I mean, that's what life is about. We're here to learn and grow. And these are our teachers. You know, if it was all joy and love and all that, we'd just be sitting around singing Kumbaya all day. Like, life wouldn't be nearly as interesting and we wouldn't, nothing would get accomplished. That sounds pretty good, though. Does it? (laughs) Here's why that's not good. You ready? Hold on, hold on. You ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to torture somebody? Give them everything they want. I don't know, but... Wait, but I I really want all the things I want. Okay, so this actually goes back to the river. By the time you cross, you're at your next river. Like the more you learn, the more you realize you know nothing. So the more that I get it into emotions, I thought I knew about them. I thought I was like, I was giving healthy musical attitude presentations with mental strategies. And then I started doing this podcast and talking more about emotions. And I realized I'm scared all the time. I have fear everywhere. So... But, but I mean, you're, you're saying you're dangling everything I want in front of me. I'm like, saying yeah, that you I have two it. choices. You can either embrace that part of you or yeah. you can fight it. Okay. Which feels easier. They're both difficult. Well, I tried fighting it. And so I'm now joining with uh, loving and appreciating my emotions, even the negative ones face. It requires effort. Yeah. But it's a hell of a lot less effort than fighting it your whole life. And the results are profoundly better. Because next thing you know, you love yourself. And isn't, aren't we all just here just trying to figure out how to love ourselves? Well, if you can't love your fear, if you can't love your negative thoughts, how are you expected to ever love yourself? If you're fighting them, you know, this, this is part of who we are. These are our children. This is it's just part of life. Yeah. We all have that thought, you know, I'm not good enough, not good enough. Everybody. Nobody is without that. Okay, so this brings up a really good point, which is the knowledge that we're in it together. So for for me, that's one of the biggest things about the River of Suck swim team is it embodies the fact that we are not alone. We are all dealing with these same issues. I mean, who wants to feel this stuff alone? We all are in this together. And that feels better at the end of every podcast to say, no one ever said crossing the river of suck would be easy or that you had to do it alone. So I want to thank you for giving it a chance. I didn't used to have the part about, or that you had it had to do it alone. And I think by talking about it and realizing that we all experience these things, that helps a lot. It does. And it's important that we experience these. You know, I spend half the year living in Mexico and there's a lot of turtle nests down there. And oh. when the turtles hatch, because a lot of them get et by birds and like the 
things they have to crawl to the ocean and if they can make it to the ocean they might survive and it, so us humans we want to like make it easy for them and pick them up and just take them walk them there right mm. but then they haven't developed they haven't uh, it's a necessary part of their development to build yeah. muscles and strength and athleticism i guess so we have to let them do it themselves or else they're going to die and so it goes back to what i'm saying you want to torture somebody, give them everything they want. You make your life, you make, and we can see it today, you make a child's life too easy. Mm. That child is so crippled as an Uh, adult. Like there's a reason why the negative exists, right? It's (laughs) here to make us strong. And we're supposed to be learning from the negative. And 100%, whether or not the negative helps you or hurts you is dependent upon how you deal with it. If you fight it, it'll hurt you. If you learn how to love it, it'll help you. It's that simple. Wow. But it's a practice. Yeah. Every day. Every day. And then we're all in it together. We're all just like (laughs) having AFCOs all over the place and swimming that river and um, trying to learn something and trying to be better people. And I have a saying, actually, that I live by, Mm -hmm. and it really helps me. Um, If you're not embarrassed about who you are today and don't resolve to do better tomorrow, you're stuck. That's the best definition of stuck I've ever heard. (laughs) Do you say that when the thought piranhas come or do you preempt them? So let's say I'm having, I wake up in the morning and I'm having a bad day. You know, I'm like woke up and I, whatever. And I, I will sit down and say, okay, it's normal and natural to have a bad day or to be in a bad mood. It's not a sign of personal weakness. It's not a faulty character of mine because I'm not all... You know, I, I can't tell you how many clients I have whose kids are riddled with anxiety because mom keeps saying, make it a great day. Because when, you, when you, yeah. you wake up and it's not a great day and you haven't made it a great day by choosing it to be a great day, you feel like you're a colossal failure. And it really messes kids up. Anyway, so back to what I'm saying. <laughs> wake up in a bad mood. Okay, normal and natural. That's my first step. And then I'm like, okay, what am I feeling? I'm feeling afraid. This is step two. Where do I feel it? It's in my thoughts. It's in my chest and throat. How strong is it? Nah, level five out of 10. And here's an equation. Suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So my discomfort's a level five. Step three, I notice what is my relationship with that feeling? Hmm. Am I resisting it? Am I trying to ignore it? Am I in my head so I don't have to feel it? Am I just trying to like make myself super busy so I don't have to deal with it? Am I going to go work out as a way to run away from it? Right. You know, like what is my level of resistance to it? Well, it's a level 10. I just don't want to feel this. I don't have time. I have something important to do today. This is not okay. What's five times 10? 50. That's quite a bit of suffering. Now the discomfort, you can't change. It's just part of life. The resistance though you can. And the resistance is actually specifically taught. And it's the treatment currently for anxiety is to resist, to try and convince ourselves that it's not real, to try to breathe it away like it's like it's CO2, like fear is somehow something you can breathe out into atmosphere. It's not true. Wow. All it yeah. does is piss fear off when you do that and comes back stronger than before. I could meditate and, you know, and if it's goal-oriented meditation to replace it with calm, like that's a temporary solution that pisses fear off as well. Like, 
So what I do is first honor my resistance. That's a process I won't get into here. But then read ultimately, the yeah, read the book, The Art of Fear. And then the fourth step is where I just spend some quality time with my fear. And like a upset child, you know, and I might even ask it questions like, what's going on? Why are you here? Oh, I'm afraid of making a fool of myself on that River of Suck podcast interview <laughs> I have later on tonight, right? Like that is, you know... Uh, then I just spend some quality time with it. And if it's really, really loud, like why is it screaming so loud? Oh, it's because I've been ignoring it. Mm. Yeah. You know, fear starts screaming louder and louder the longer you ignore it. And uh, spending some quality time with it, it calms right down. And then I learn something about myself. And I love that part of me. And it's a self-love practice. And with that, I just then feel better. And it's, it only takes a few minutes. You like adding the word cosmic to things. Why? I like adding the word cosmic to things because like, let's say if you're feeling anger and if you make it cosmic anger or divine anger, then all of a sudden it just is a bigger picture kind of spiritual experience um, that's just beyond my own personal anger, but includes the anger of the world, the anger of the black holes, the anger of the rivers and all of that. And it just gives you a bigger picture of the world. And I want to just give an analogy. Like you pour a, a tablespoon of salt into a glass of water and you try to drink it. It's disgusting. You pour a tablespoon of salt into, the salt represents your anger, hmm. into a lake and drink it. It's not going to be a big deal. So the more, the, the broader perspective you have, um, the less the anger really feels like much of a thing. Cosmic anger. Cosmic dolphin. Cosmic love. Co cosmic mind. Cosmic thought piranha. <laughs> <laughs> divine thought piranha. Ooh. See, oh, yes. That, that's actually, I like, I like divine, divine better. Too. Divine thought piranha. It's a way to honor the thought piranha. Yeah. Nice. So if we want to learn more... Where do we go? Go to kristenulmer.com, E-N-U-L-M-E-R. And I have a free fear and anxiety assessment on my homepage. Take it. It's really interesting. And, you know, it starts, if you want to have a healthier relationship with your emotions, it just starts with having some awareness and the questions are really compelling. And then you find out your type. And then I give a lot of really fascinating content that can help you on your journey to having the best possible relationship with your emotions. So that's why I suggest you start. And I also suggest you buy my book, The Art of Fear. It's a great book. River of Suck it. podcast also suggests you buy this book, The Art of Fear. It's it's definitely a industry changer. Um, I'm what's known as a disruptor. Mm -hmm. I'm an industry just disruptor. Like what I teach on what to do about fear is unlike anything else you'll ever find out there. And uh, it works. You know, if you have an issue, an emotional issue, it may seem like a fear issue. You may be fearless, but have feel like you have a lot of anxiety, you know, but the anxiety is fear. You may have an anger issue, but you don't feel fear that's a fear issue like if you have an emotional issue in your life then this book will tell you exactly why and then also tell you what to do about it yeah and and you also run camps and events 
courses, yeah. online courses. I have content on, on my website. You can get on a phone call. You too could talk to Kristen Ulmer. And then there's the question, why should we do this? I mean, wouldn't we rather just keep our heads in the sand about fear? Well, we kind of can't anymore. It's not working. You know, if we keep this up pretty soon, we'll all be medicated. I say that your relationship with fear is the most important relationship of your life because it's a relationship that you have with yourself at your core. And so you want to make it the best relationship possible, especially if you want to thrive um, on this wild, crazy ride called life. Kristen, it's been so fun to talk to you about fear and life. And thank you for being here and spilling your guts and sharing your secrets that are very hard fought. Andy, you're one of my new favorite people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no one ever said crossing the river of suck would be easy or comfortable or that you had to do it alone. So thank you for giving it a chance. Check out riverofsuck.com for some bonus content. You're going to get music, extended interview. We talked for a long time about super brilliant things, and some things will be only available to the River of Suck swim team. You too can join for $1 a month. More details at riverofsuck.com. Please tell your friends, like it on Facebook, follow me on Instagram. My name is Andy Reiner. My name is Kristen Ulmer. Keep, Keep swimming! swimming.